This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. We're standing to open to Galatians chapter 1. We started a new series in Galatians, and this is our third message, and Galatians, you remember, you'll find that, by the way, on page 972 if you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles. And remember that uh, the Apostle Paul, we believe this is his first letter. He wrote it to a group of churches <clears throat> in a region called Galatia who were losing touch with what matters most, the gospel. They were drifting from an understanding of the most important thing you could ever understand, which is how can sinful human being made be made right before God and so he writes this letter he begins very energetically this is a very unusual opening I'll read through verse 7 Paul an apostle not from man nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it to your heart. Have a seat. Thank you. Well, if you've been here, you remember that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote Galatians because some Jewish men uh, who were false teachers had come down from Jerusalem saying they believe that faith in Jesus Christ is good and essential but it's not good enough not quite good enough to faith in Jesus one must add obedience to the law of Moses remember as John Stott said let Moses finish what Jesus started <laughs> And this uh, Jesus plus gospel, Paul says, is no gospel at all. Remember, gospel means good news. There's no good news in the idea that obedience to the law of Moses needs to be added. As Josh Moody said in his commentary, a Jesus plus gospel is really a Jesus minus gospel. We said last week, because if you add to the person and work of Jesus Christ, what you are really doing is you're subtracting from him. You are subtracting from the efficacy of what he did, the effectualness. You're uh, uh, subtracting from the sufficiency of, of his person and his work. And you're claiming that your salvation, your being set right before a holy God, is the result of some of Jesus plus some of me. <laughs> how much of you? Who decides how much of you? Who measures how much of you to add 
to what Jesus has done. You can see how this couldn't be good news at all, and this is why Paul is, is deeply and profoundly disturbed. Right? We said Paul begins his salutation immediately by planting in his salutation the seeds of what he will address. He uses key words. He's forecasting what he's going to be talking about. He begins with as much urgency, as light as possible. And to sum up verses 1 through 5, we said that what he does is he sets forth four qualities of the gospel he preaches, the true gospel, which I'm calling the divine gospel. The divine gospel is a gospel of divine origin. It is a gospel of divine blessing. It's a gospel rooted in divine love. And it's a gospel that produces divine deliverance. Each of these elements are essential to understand if we're going to understand what God is saying to us in his gospel. And so last week we introduced that. And what we did is we looked at the first one and the fourth one. I went out of order for the sake of application, for the sake of applying the fourth one. And what I'll do this morning is we'll, we'll make our way through each of them. The first and last I'm just going to touch on briefly and we'll go in deeply into second and third. We want to we hear this all together and see how it comes together in its entirety. So again, Paul is planting the seeds of what he's going to address, forecasting what he's going to be speaking of. And the first thing he tells us is that his gospel, the gospel he preaches, is, is a gospel of divine origin. He begins by defending his authority, his apostleship. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. No counsel voted for me, <laughs> but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's a, what's he doing? He's appealing to the fact that he, just like the other true apostles, is an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about how he was called by Christ on that road to Damascus. Why does he begin this way? Because if, because if you undermine the messenger, you can undermine the message. And so he defends his authority, he defends his apostleship in order to defend the true gospel. And what he is saying that like his calling is divine, his message is divine. He will say that much in verse 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. We'll look more at that in a couple weeks. And so this is his first shot across the bow. Whatever these people are saying about me, whatever these teachers from Jerusalem are saying about me and where I, who I am and do I have the right to say what I am, let me make clear, you need to listen to me because I met Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And so the gospel that you and I believe, the gospel that the apostles handed down to us in Scripture is not man's gospel. No man would think of this message. It comes as revelation from God. Now, we didn't say anything about verse 2 last week, and he says, and all the brothers who are with me. Uh, I think there's various reasons why Paul might have done that. He doesn't name any names. Some think he was just in a hurry. He's trying to get to verse 6. Right? I am astonished that... But perhaps I might suggest that what he, the reason he says that is that he's defending his apostleship and he says, and I'm not the only one that thinks this way. Everyone who's with me agrees with me about my calling and my gospel. I think that's what Paul is doing there. And we said the importance of understanding this, that the gospel that we believe, the gospel that saves, 
is, is of divine origin because there's a vastly important question, and that question is, where does religious authority come from? Tradition? Where does the authority to bind your conscience and my conscience and say what you believe is true or what you believe is false or believe this and you will enter into heaven and you will be forgiven of all your sins or do not believe this or believe what you're believing and you are going to be condemned to hell. Who has the right to put that kind of weight upon a person's soul? To bind our conscience. Well, the, the source of authority in, in, in our contemporary age uh, it comes from various places in people's minds. You know, those who are more uh, philosophical in their thinking turn to rationalism or empiricism and, and so forth. But the vast majority of our culture simply turns to subjectivism. Today, authority lies in the individual, in the individual's feelings, in the individual's outlook. You know. we, 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 we listen to our heart, we're told. Right? We look within. And... I, I define my truth for me. You define your truth for you. And this is what's led to the massive amount of tribalism and, and spite and lack of unity. Um, the scripture says that we don't listen to our heart because our hearts are fallen and they're, they're affected by a rebellion against God. It has a disease. We don't listen to our heart. We speak to our heart. And what we speak to our heart is what God has said, his revelation and that ultimate authority, intrinsic authority lies in God alone. He is the creator. And God, the creator, has delegated his authority through those whom he's called who speak his word. The apostles. We no longer have capital A apostles in our day. There is no apostolic succession in the Bible. Paul didn't appoint another apostle after he died, and that apostle appointed another. John didn't appoint an apostle after he died, who then appointed another. There is no apostolic succession in the scriptures, but what we do have is the historical succession of apostolic doctrine. We have the once for all delivered faith of Holy Scripture. And so to read and hear Galatians is to hear the voice of Christ preaching to you. So the gospel is a divine gospel because it has a divine origin and the right to bind our conscience and set us free. Set our conscience free and know that all is truly well because God has said it. And secondly, the gospel is a divine gospel because it's a gospel that brings divine blessing. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These two terms, grace and peace, sum up the heart, the very heart of the, of the benefits that come with and from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. And these grace... This grace and this peace, these blessings do not come to us only once. At the beginning, Paul is praying for people he's evangelized. More grace to you, more peace to you, you see. And so when he includes these words in his salutation, remember, these are not mere conventions. He's not just being polite, you know, kind of like, dear Tony, I'm writing you a letter. No. Remember, he, he is... Um, He's anticipating matters that he's going to have to address. These are the things that are at issue in those churches. What? They were drifting from grace, therefore they were not at peace. 
not at peace in their own hearts and therefore not at peace with each other. Chapter 6, be careful lest you devour one another. And so he wishes them more grace and more peace and, and, and likewise for ourselves that God may continue to give us his grace and give us his peace, you know. Whenever we add to the grace of God our own little litmus test for what a true disciple is, it always leads to a lack of peace. A lack of peace in our own conscience and a lack of peace in our relationships because we begin to measure others by our lists and our self-righteousness. And before you know it, we are devouring each other because we don't live under the grace of God. Let's think of these two things. When the gospel is central in the life of a, of a church, when Christ and the gospel is central, what we receive, what we live under, is grace, peace. And what is grace? Well, you've heard the acrostic before, probably many of you. Those of you who grew up in church, grace is what God's riches at Christ's expense, right? That's, and all that is true. It doesn't go far enough. The use of words biblically are important to understand. And the New Testament word for grace is used, is one of the words used to translate a couple of words in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, and especially the word chesed, God's covenant love. That is, his love, his grace towards those who belong to him in his covenant. And so grace is understood the way Paul uses it, especially to, to be God's divine favor. He favored that he shows. Uh, God's favor freely given to people who not only don't merit it, but merit the opposite. <laughs> right? Grace doesn't simply reach those who have not earned it, but it reaches those who have earned something else. Human beings who in their rebellion, like me and like you, have, have merited God's judgment. Is condemnation, but grace is freely given towards people like that. Grace must be free, or it's not grace. It is not based on merit. It is not based on your performance, not on your doings. It's based on the doings of another, the doings of Christ. And because of Christ, God the Father can show grace. He can extend his divine favor. God is free to leave us where we are. And if he did, he would be just. For we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. But grace, because it's part of the nature of God and is in the plan of God, is freely given to rebels. Don't you love those verses in Paul's writing that say, but God, <laughs> you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You lived in this darkness, but God, being rich in mercy, he says. Yeah, that's grace, you see. Well, grace is the antithesis, the very opposite of what these, these agitators were teaching in Galatia. 
They were undermining the grace of God. Why? Because they were turning it into something that isn't free. You must add to grace. You must keep the law of Moses. And so they were undermining the message of God's free grace. But the gospel, which means, remember, good news, announces that God graciously has and continues to provide all that is necessary to reconcile sinners like you and me to himself for an eternity. That God in his grace has acted in such a way to achieve the basis for the forgiveness of our sins, our justification, our sanctification, our adoption, our glorification, our resurrection, and our perseverance in the faith in this life because grace continues to give us the strength we need. How? Through the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. This is grace. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins... Very differently than he does Galatians chapter 1. You remember this, Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, because that's where Christ is and we're in Him, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Grace began before the world was created, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, and in Him we are holy and blameless because of Christ's righteousness. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His what his glorious grace his grace his glorious grace that achieved all this with which he has blessed us in the beloved or beloved one in him that is in Christ we have redemption through his blood the cross the forgiveness of our trespasses here it is again according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us isn't that awesome yeah, God's, um, God's wealth of grace is so rich he'll never run out of it. <laughs> and he lavishes it upon his children. That's grace. Grace to you. May God give you grace. And peace. And peace. You know, the order is significant here. It's grace first, then peace. If you think you're at peace, but you haven't received grace, you have a false peace. Because grace comes first, grace awakens us, grace provides, grace brings salvation, and the knowledge of that is what? Peace. <laughs> peace. Nothing better, nothing sweeter than knowing that you are right with God forever. You can't undo it. <laughs> You, me, who blow it weekly, <laughs> cannot undo it. There's debates, you know, about what kind of peace that Paul is writing about here because the New Testament, as well as the Old, but in particular Paul speaks of what some call objective peace, being at peace with God, and subjective peace, feeling like I'm at peace with God. Right? The second one, the subjective peace, the peace of God, that 
that goes up and down, right? Sometimes we don't feel that way because we're not living under the gospel. Or maybe we're listening to agitators like those in Galatia who say, you haven't lived good enough. How could you be at peace? You ought to be troubled. <laughs> and so people debate. Is he talking about objective peace or subjective peace? The good news is this, that the gospel brings both. <laughs> It always cracks me up when I read uh, commentators who write for five-page debating those two things and in the end say exactly what I just said. <laughs> you know, why did you give five pages to it? The gospel gives both of those to us. First of all, Paul says, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We, we are in a status of peace. I'm at peace with God, and God is at peace with him. I'm not on some list, you know. The bad list. And it's knowing that I'm at peace with God because it was based on the merits of someone outside of me, the beautiful, perfect Son of God. Then allows me to experience the peace of God. But that wanes, right? It goes up and down. We wrestle with our own, our own failures and, and troubles. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians chapter 4, you know, to make all your prayers, all your needs known. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will surround or garrison your heart, right? Protect it. So the good news is when you understand the gospel and you have re received the grace of God coming in the gospel, by faith you have entrusted yourself to Christ, you believe what God has said about Christ, you receive peace. Peace with God forever. It is settled and you will experience the peace of God. The source of this peace, God the Father, God the Son, working in concert, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father, because He's the one who promised this peace, the Messiah in Isaiah 9, uh, 7 is promised to be what? The Prince of Peace. Isaiah, and I think it's 52, he speaks of a covenant of peace. So God has promised peace, promised the Messiah of peace, and, and it's from Christ because what, as you heard Michael read in the, in the middle of the worship, Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. He's made peace between a holy God and sinners like me and you. And then he says he came and he preached the peace, peace, to those who are far off Gentiles and peace to those who are near the Jews. What I want you to see here already is that the, the salvation of people like you and me, our salvation does not start with us nor does it end with us. The initiative is God's. The achievement is God's and the sustaining power to remain committed to what he has said is God's as well. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself and we are in him. Yes, and this is alone what brings Grace and peace is understanding that. When, when you drift, listen, when you drift from the gospel, 
however minor it might be, that you begin to rationalize in your mind that, that, that you are not right with God, that something has to be wrong because you, you've done this or you've done that, or these people can't be right because they don't measure up to the litmus test that you have. When you drift from the gospel, you drift from grace and peace. You leave it. And it begins to leave you in the sense that you don't experience that sense of grace, that sense of peace. I think a lot of the distress that some people feel and anxiety within the church, the visible church anyhow, is the result of what? Of beginning to, beginning to look at your own doings for a sense of peace. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Remember the saying, for every 10 looks at yourself, excuse me, for every yeah, uh, one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And so the gospel that we believe, the gospel that is apostolic, is a gospel of divine origin. It's a gospel of divine blessing because it alone brings true grace and peace into people's hearts and into communities like a church. And it's also a gospel that is rooted in divine love. Now, I know the word love isn't in there, but I'll explain the connection here. Look what he says, that, that uh, this is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, having mentioned the Lord Jesus, he says, who gave himself for our sins. And again, this is going to be critical to everything Paul is saying. In other words, he's already saying, if he had to give himself for our sins, how can you add to what he's done? That's where he's going. Who gave himself, he's referring to what? The voluntary self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrifice for our sins, for our guilt, as Luther says. He didn't give himself for our righteousness because we have none. (laughs) He gave himself for our sins. And so Luther says, know them and own them and bring them to him. He gave himself for those sins. And so, the term love is not here, but I'm connecting it because it is found repeatedly throughout the New Testament, particularly in Paul and John's writings, as the basis for the atonement. And the atonement is a a way of referring to the sacrifice, the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ that resulted in reconciliation between God and sinners. And God's willingness to do this and, and Christ's willingness to do this is rooted in what? Where does it come from? It comes from God's heart of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, right? That whoever believes in Him or the believing ones should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's love. Love is, the love of God is that love which puts into motion what we need to be reconciled without waiting for us to do anything, because we can't, right? It's not based on the loveliness of, of, of the object or anything we've done. And notice that both the Father and the Son are connected to 
the crucifixion, the, the sacrifice of Christ. I mentioned John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, the Father gave, the Son. And here we read what? That Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave himself for our sins. The Father gave the Son for our sins. The Son gave himself for our sins. What this is called to, what this is referred to, uh, is the inseparable operations of the Holy Trinity. I'm not trying to just get complex here. (laughs) But we need to know our God, and our God is different than us. God is utterly different. That's why he's called holy. To be holy means to be separate. He's creator. He's beyond us. And he, scripture tells us as we study it collectively that God is one in one sense, right? Behold the Lord, the Lord our God, he is one. He is one in one sense, but he's three in a different sense. He is one in his essence, his being, I might say, respectfully, the stuff that makes God God, right? And in that one essence, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's one in one sense, he's three in another sense. Hank Hanegraaff used to say, there's one what and three who's. (laughs) What is God like? His essence, his being. Who is God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you see. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person exercises the same divine attributes, but each one does so in a manner that is peculiar to his person. The Father planned and sent the Son. The Son submits and and goes to the cross, and the Spirit is involved as well. All three persons of the Trinity work together inseparably to to effect what? The atonement. To settle it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit all came together, right? They are working together to effect what you and I need to to be forgiven, justified, and reconciled to Him. And so the same thing happens with the resurrection. So this is what gets confusing sometimes, which is why I'm I'm, I'm just putting this together briefly this morning, is that it said that the Father raised the Son. And then it says, Jesus says, I have the authority to raise myself, my own body. And and then it says, Romans 1, he was declared uh, the Son of God by power of the Holy Spirit when he was raised from the dead. And someone says, "Who who raised him from the dead? God raised him from the dead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And same, who, who provided for the atonement? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah. Well, here we read that the Son gave himself, right? And he gave himself out of love. Paul says in Ephesians 5, the same apostle, writing to a different church, Ephesians 5, verse 2, he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A sacrifice that reconciles. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It came out of love. Love in the heart of the Son who gave himself up for the church, for her, for us. I laid my life down for the sheep, right, the people of God. 
And we read that uh, the Father is the one who gave the Son. Isaiah 53, the prophet says that the Father, God, was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And it was the Spirit involved in providing the atonement. Yes, Hebrews 9 puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, what does that long statement mean? It means if these Old Testament sacrifices made people uh, qualified to uh, worship in the Old Covenant, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself? There it is. Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. And because of what he's done, we're not just qualified to carry on in Old Testament symbolic worship. What he does purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen? But I want you to see that the Spirit was involved in this. How else could Christ, a man who had set aside reliance upon his deity, as a man, endure what he had to endure, offer himself on the cross. He did so through the eternal spirit. Father, Son, Spirit, working together to effect what you and I need, reconciliation, forgiveness forever, justification, adoption. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he summed it up beautifully. Here's what he said, atonement is from the Father through the Son who is offered in the Spirit for our salvation. It is a work of holy love by all three persons of the Trinity. And what did he do out of love? He gave himself by the Father's sending and the Spirit's power. He gave himself which the, the terminology is to hand yourself over unto judgment. He gave himself for our sins. What is Paul doing here? He is anticipating again. He's forecasting what he's dealing with and where he's going to people who think they need to add to what Christ has done. Uh, Paul is forecasting a bit what he's going to say in Galatians chapter 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I'm not only justified by faith, but my life of obedience, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here it is, who loved me and gave himself for me. You notice that Paul has moved in the gospel as he writes in the beginning now here in chapter 2. He moves from the generic to the personal. He gave himself for our sins, right? And here he says, he loved me, gave himself for me. And to be a Christian, you need to make that transition too. You need to move beyond hearing and thinking, well, I can agree that Jesus was a real man. I can agree that he died for sins. You need to move beyond that. You need to, be you need to believe in your heart or hearts. He died because of your sin and for your sin. For me. And what I'm here to tell you is he did it out of love. Not because he sees or foresees anything you can do. Not because of how well you live. 
But out of love, he gave himself for the church, but you need to personalize it. He gave himself for me. It was R.C. Sproul used to say, and it's appropriate to quote him here, don't just believe in God, right? Believe God. Don't just say, oh, I believe in God. Believe God. And what does he say? On the one hand, he says, the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. On the other hand, he says, but the free, God, free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you just believe in God? Growing up in church, that can be like that. I believe in God. Or do you believe God? Believe him, my friends, and have eternal life. And when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. How many of you know the next, the next part, huh? That on the cross, say with me, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. That's what you need to have in your heart, don't you think? My sin. Yeah, my sin. Praise God. And so the gospel is a divine gospel. Why? It has a divine origin. It brings divine blessings that only God can give. Supernatural, grace and peace. It is rooted in divine love, which alone could what? Accomplish. Accomplish what we need to be reconciled to God. And lastly, it is a divine gospel because it also brings about a divine deliverance or a divine rescue. We spent most of our time on that last week, so I just dipped my toes in there. He says, who gave himself for our sins, and here's a purpose clause, to or in order to deliver us from the present evil age. And the verb there, to deliver, is the same verb that's used of Israel, being delivered from Slavery, bondage to Egypt. It's a rescue, a deliverance, being set free from, from sort, some sort of bondage. And we said last week, the Son of God came into the world on a rescue mission, not just an educational mission. <laughs> he didn't come simply to be a great teacher, though he is. He didn't come simply to be a great moral example, though he is the ultimate moral example. He came to do what? To rescue us, <laughs> to deliver us through his life, death, and resurrection, living and dying in our place for us. We said last week that if you picture a torrential flood carrying someone away, you don't throw them a manual on how to swim in torrential floods. <laughs> And you don't stand on the bank and say, look at me and let me be your example. What do you do? You find a way to rescue. You dive in. The word became flesh. He came flesh and dwelt among us. And he went to the cross on our behalf. And to as many as received them, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. Amen? Yeah, you see, he came on a rescue mission. And to those who believe in, he says, we have been delivered from 
That interesting phrase, the present evil age. I won't go into all that from last week. Let me just say the concluding element about that is that those who believe in him continue to live in the present evil age, an age of what? Of darkness, of sin, of death, of suffering, of pain, of disease. But we belong to the age to come, the age of resurrection, the age of life, the age of peace, the age of newness, right? And so we have received the benefit of the future, We've entered into life of the future, but not in its entirety because we now live out the life to come, the age to come in the present evil age. And believers are new creations, as our brother prayed, living their lives in the old creation. But the seal, the security that God gives us through the gospel and His grace is the gift of his own indwelling presence, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit entering your life at at the moment of conversion is an engagement ring. It's a a promise of the inheritance. You belong to me. We will be wed. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. (laughs) That's the pledge. And he is the what? He is the, the source of the power to live in a holy way in an unholy age. Banging people up with the law doesn't achieve that. The Spirit achieves that, who writes the law in our hearts. This is very important. This is what Paul's getting at. What did I say last week? The essence of Paul's argument is two-pronged in the book of Galatians, and it's this. The only way to be right with God is through the cross of Christ. The only way to live right before God is through the Spirit of Christ. The law doesn't contribute to either one as the means. Both the cross and the Spirit are gifts of God's grace that come through faith alone, simply through the gift of believing in Him. They're gracious gifts from God. And so this is truly what... uh, what ultimately, ultimately defines you and me, right? If you're a Christian, your real identity lies in who God has made you by uniting you with the Lord Jesus Christ, by turning you into a new creation, living out your life in the old creation, and placing His Spirit in you. The world would define you. The world would define your identity based on other things, such as your wealth, your pedigree, your looks, your your achievements, your failures, and so forth. And our own hearts, because their sin still dwells in us, is frequently tempted to agree with that and find our identity in the same way that the world is telling us, you see. But the gospel tells you all that will pass away that your real identity is untouchable and eternity. You are an adopted child of God, belonging to a forever family, born again with new life and will be raised again to an eternal life in the new creation. And all this, he says, is according to the will of our God and Father. In other words, it's always been planned. I already read from Ephesians 1, right? He predestined us to adoption. All of this that happens is according to the will of our God and Father. 
And the only appropriate way to respond to such a thing is with praise. And so Paul, he does this so frequently. And I imagine him on this time, I think he did write this with his own hand. He mentions that at the end, you know. At this point, he just can't but stop and say, oh God, thank you, right? And so he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Well, that's usually at the end of the letter. <laughs> but it's right here in the introduction because in the salutation, he's inserted so much of the gospel there. He's put it all there, really, right? God has planned it. The Father's planned it. The Son has achieved it. The Spirit has applied it. Praise be to God in heaven, right? That's what he's saying right here. There's nothing more glorious to me and I have the blessing of this. Nothing more glorious than not simply hearing about someone coming to faith and being invaded by the grace and peace of God, but actually seeing it in its moment. It's supernatural. I've been blessed here and there throughout my Christian life to see it. I saw it at junior high camp, twin girls, seen it in deathbeds. Here and there I've seen that. But one I'll never forget. And remember I said that none, not all of us have dramatic Paul-like Damascus Road conversions, right? But they're, they're all no less miraculous. But there's one that accentuates for me the power of the gospel to bring the divine blessings of grace and peace. Early on in my Christian walk, before I was a pastor, um, we were, in a, as you know, a Christian band, many of you know this, and we would share the gospel in clubs and outdoor concerts and so forth. And we'd gather people from the crowds and they would come to a Tuesday night Bible study, which we ran for many years and off and on. And um, this one young man had come from uh, the source, I forget, but he was hanging out with us for a long time and slowly he became, you know, a roadie. He would kind of help us set stuff up and he would come and we knew he wasn't in the faith, but he was interested. And one night I got to the rehearsal night and uh, a couple of the other guys said, hey, um, you got to come back here, man. I said, what's wrong? Let's call him Steve. They said, Steve, it's weird. Steve's in the corner. He's lying there in, in like this catatonic state. He won't say anything. I said, what? And he said, yeah, he's back there behind the drum set. So I walked in the rehearsal room. And there he was, crouched down behind the drum set in this catatonic state, just like this. I got down to his level and said, what's up? What's wrong? And he wouldn't say anything. He would just shaking and looking at me and what's wrong with you what's wrong with you tell me what's wrong with you he said no I go, what's wrong finally he just eked up i've done terrible things terrible things you know he's been listening to the gospel but he, he's wrestling with with this i said what kind of terrible things i can't tell you I said steve god already knows man <laughs> there's no secrets with him and if I'm going to help you, just tell me, what, what are you wrestling with? And so he, I won't share with you, but he shared with me the things that he had been carrying around, sins he'd committed, which are dark, dark, terrible things. And he didn't think God could forgive that. I had the privilege of going over and over with him, what God has affected. He died for your sins. No matter how dark, no matter how many, no matter how high, his grace is more. He has atoned. It's but for you to trust God, believe him. And it was right then at that moment that you could see the light, the eyes light up 
Shoulders relax. Tears flow. Grace and peace floods the soul. You're right with God, man. It was never about what you could do to undo this. No amount of penance and beating yourself up and crying will ever change it. It's, it's wrong, yes. Sin is a heinous thing. It's, it's a powerful thing. And when God, when God lets us see just how bad it is, praise God, he's looked to the solution, you see. And I don't doubt that in a room this side, I, I said that to the first hour, that there's people, and I don't doubt there's some people here right now with, with some sort of haunting memory some shame of some sin or sins that you've committed. You are holding on to something that you've done. You always have it with you. Most of the time it's in the background, but somebody says something and makes you think of it. Somebody shares something. It becomes the cloud that comes back up. There's moments when you're overwhelmed by the weight of it. And perhaps you're one of those people that lives according to this phrase that just the other night, Sharon and I were watching a film, we heard it again, you know pause (laughs) did you hear that yeah he can't forgive himself yes I can't forgive myself maybe you're even thinking that that's what this man was thinking you see don't you see my friend that you are playing God with your conscience that you are playing God with your justification Who are you to have the authority? Again, where does religious authority come from? Who are you to have the authority to forgive your own sins against the living God? He is the one. And what has he said? I so loved the world I sent. I gave. It is finished. He paid for that sin, my friend. Don't play God with your conscience. Trust him. Don't just believe in a God. Believe God. (laughs) The free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is Christ's to achieve, mine to proclaim, yours to receive. And to deny this gift, you do so to your own destruction, your own peril. Believe God, what he says. Trust him. Let's pray. Let me give you time to reflect. All of you. Are you believing God, my friend, and what he says about his son? Lord, help our unbelief Lavish your grace on this church. Open eyes and hearts. Save our children. Deliver us, God, from self-righteousness. 
pour your grace and peace into our hearts. And especially, Lord, I pray for those who are, are just not far from the kingdom but struggling with, with this whole message. Lord, please lovingly touch their hearts, I pray. And Lord, we finish now by responding with our gratitude through our offerings. Lord, bless those who give and those who cannot. In Christ's name, amen. Mm-hmm.